Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, growth equity investor at Norris Venture Partners and former investment maker Goldman Sachs. So we've had quite a few marketplace founders on the podcast, from Jeff Fleur, who built one of the earliest internet marketplaces in StubHub, all the way to Ian Siegel at ZipRecruiter and Marco Zappacosta at Thumbtack. And through our conversations, we've learned all about some of the operational KPIs that marketplaces focus on, whether that be LTV to CAC ratios or marketplace liquidity. Now, today's podcast is very special because not only are we going to dive into these operational aspects of our marketplace, but we're also going to spend a significant amount of time on some broader strategic topics like M&A and going public, which are two very defining kinds of events for any company. So that is why I am very excited to announce Stefan Casriel, CEO at Upwork, as today's podcast guest. Now, for those of you who aren't using Upwork yet, Upwork is the leading freelancer marketplace that's now valued at $1.7 billion in the public markets. And I am delighted to have Stefan on for a number of reasons. Number one being that he is a seasoned operator, having built and sold his own company, in addition to holding senior leadership positions at Silicon Valley stalwarts like PayPal. But also reason number two being his experience affecting very transformative strategic alternatives, like integrating the merger of two leading competitors to form Upwork, and then taking Upwork through a highly successful IPO. So in today's podcast, Stefan and I chat about how exactly one leads a horizontal merger, as well as the process of taking a company public. We talk about the rationale of these transactions and Stefan's lessons learned in his journey leading up to ringing the New York Stock Exchange bell. Additionally, Stefan and I discuss Upwork's operational goals, ranging from scaling its average spend per client to enhancing trust and safety for its users. So why don't we get started? Hey, Stefan, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. As I had mentioned to you before, but just to share with the audience, I use Upwork for pretty much every aspect of running the podcast, from the initial startup of designing a logo to now working with a wonderful freelancer named Roma for all of my post-production. So excited to have a conversation today. But before we dive into the business, why don't we hear a little bit about your career and how you came to be the CEO of Upwork? Yeah. So I've been in tech for most of my life. Starting when I was 12, I you know learned how to code on an Atari 800 back in 1985. And I moved to Silicon Valley in 97, went to grad school here at Stanford, started a company, sold it in 2004, went back to business school, realizing I had made quite a few mistakes in my first company. And then I went to PayPal to launch PayPal in France, then moved back to Silicon Valley, still with PayPal to run the consumer side of the business left PayPal to join an early stage mobile payments company called Zong, which we sold to PayPal, rejoined PayPal to help with the post-merger integration, and then left to go join another early stage tech company, which didn't go all that well. And at that point, I reconnected with the chairman of Upwork, who I had known for a long time, who was looking for somebody to run product at the company back when it was called Odesk in 2012. And I just loved the story. I met the founders. I thought what they were doing was going to change the world and make it a better place and really help millions of people get access to better jobs than what the traditional job market would provide. And so I fell in love with the customers. I fell in love with the mission. I fell in love with the team. And I thought this was the place for me. And so that was seven years ago. And a merger later, I became the CEO of the company, then took it public with the team last year. 
And here we are seven years in. And it's been an awesome ride since. And I'm a happy shareholder. Awesome. So could you also give some context for anyone in the audience who isn't familiar with what pain points Upwork solves? Yeah. So, I mean, what it is in a nutshell is very simple to explain. It's a marketplace to connect freelancers with businesses. So we help companies of all sizes, anywhere from, you know, you doing your podcast all the way to 30% of the Fortune 500 that use Upwork. You know, our biggest customers have thousands of people working for them through the platform at any point in time. So big companies, small companies, and then on the supply side of the marketplace, you know, it's a two-sided network. It's a combination of individuals that may be doing this part-time or full-time, as well as small and medium-sized businesses that are sourcing work through us. And we do this across 5,000 skills and 70 categories. So it's essentially any type of professional knowledge work. What we don't do is, you know, be an Uber or a TaskRabbit, the blue-collar type of work. What we do is the knowledge work that can be done online and remotely. So we are best known for software engineering. We're going to do about $2 billion this year. About a billion of that is software engineering. So we're the place where you can build your mobile app, you can build your website, you can integrate your work there with your SAP and all of the other stuff that people need software engineers for. And that's about half the business. But we also have a big creative and design category, which are the people that help you edit the blog. They might also edit the video. They might build a blog post out of it. They might do infographics to illustrate what we do. And we do this at scale for very large CPGs where we will produce thousands of videos for them per month in different countries and all of that done by freelancers. And then there's a long tail of other categories, anywhere from consulting to accounting to you know, recruiting, anything that ends with an ing, I guess, we can do on Upwork. So that's kind of the, you know, what we do. Why we do it is because we can make both parties better off. Fundamentally, you know, when we think of unemployment rate in the U.S. as being 3%, that leaves another big number that nobody ever talks about, which is labor force participation rate. And in reality, there's about 20% of U.S. adults right now that are neither employed nor unemployed, many of whom are actually able to do a lot of meaningful work and just not being able to get access to opportunities. There's about 35% of the workforce in the U.S. that is doing some amount of freelancing today. And if you ask them why people freelance full-time as opposed to get a traditional job, what we hear is 40% of freelancers say they can't take a full-time job because they either have a physical or mental disability that makes it hard for them to do it, or they have care duties, you know, young kids at home or elderly parents that make the grind of the nine to five to our commute be completely incompatible with the constraints of their personal life. Or they live in a part of the country where there's just no jobs and they're either unable or unwilling to relocate. So we really think we're helping the supply side of the network, if you will, by giving them access to economic opportunities that they could not get through the traditional labor market. And then of course, on the other side, Everybody's talking about the skills gap and everybody's talking about the talent war, but then everybody's looking in the same way for the Yale graduate with a computer science degree who happens to live in San Francisco. And that's a very limited pool of talent. And we can help companies find higher quality talents much faster than they could otherwise, people that are much more loyal and much more engaged with them by tapping into this talent pool that nobody else is looking into. I love the story of enabling the global small business economy, but what I didn't realize until now, which you helped click for me, is enabling those that aren't even counted in the statistics within labor market participation. And a personal anecdote for me here is that I work with a woman named Amy who edits my episode blogs on the website, and Amy is a mother of two kids. 
And through Upwork, she's given the agency to make a living within the confines of her schedule. So that's really wonderful. I'm curious, though, as I think about marketplaces broadly, I think one thing we struggle with as investors when it comes to marketplaces is how they differentiate beyond scale itself, right? You have the network effects, which are wonderful, but there are a ton of other labor marketplaces out there. So why do you think Upwork is differentiated? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of things, right? So some of it is tied to network effect and just having the critical mass. You know, a big part of what we do at the end of the day is machine learning, right? We are trying to understand what are you really looking for and making sure that we help you find the right freelancers. And then on the other side of the equation, we're really trying to understand what are you interested in and what are you capable of and trying to match you with the best possible job opportunities. You know, at any point in time on the site, there's about 300,000 open jobs and probably about 300,000 people looking for work. And if everybody had to sift through 300,000 resumes, the thing would just be a complete non-starter, right? So having big data, having the best predictive models helps you reduce friction, improve liquidity, and generally be a better functioning marketplace. And scale helps a lot with that. And that's one component of it. Another one is around trust and safety. Obviously, you know, if you thought it was scary to buy an iPod for the first time on eBay 20 years ago, this is even more critical, right? If you're a freelancer, this is your livelihood. If you don't get paid by the client, that's a huge problem. You may not be able to pay your bills. And then on the buyer side, you might give highly confidential, very mission critical work to somebody that you may never meet in real life. And so trust matters a lot, right? And so building the capabilities to build the level of you know, security and trust into the system requires a significant amount of investment and frankly requires you to lose a lot of money, right? The only way you know who are the good actors and the not so good actors is if you have a history of many, many years, and we've been doing it for 20 years, looking at false positives and false negatives and just having the best predictive model. So I would say those two are tied to scale. Then there's software itself. Like what we do, you know, what I usually tell the, our team is we're trying to build an iceberg. We're trying to build something where the users see the tip of the iceberg and everything seems easy and seamless. You click on a few buttons and things magically happen and you don't think about it. But if you think about the stuff we've had to build underneath the surface, right? We've built a job board like an Indeed. We've built an applicant tracking system like a Jobvite or Lever. We've built a billing system. We've built a payment network like a PayPal. We have an invoicing and tax system like a QuickBooks. I mean, we, there's a messaging infrastructure within Upwork where you can do text, voice, and video one-on-one -on -one and group-based like a Slack. So essentially, we've built things that would be as a standalone, completely independent companies. And the reason why we've all integrated them into the platform is because if you had to do this manually, you'd be spending all of your days copying and pasting between different systems. You know, like you post a job on LinkedIn, but then you need to onboard them onto your email system, and then you need to give them access to your source code, et cetera, et cetera, all of which would be incredibly inefficient. And so we've had to build this overall platform to do all this stuff. And I think the last one I would say is there's a lot of Upwork for X. So it's either Upwork for Brazil, like a specific country, or Upwork for legal, just a specific category. And I think the reason why ultimately the horizontal approach that we have wins is because of lifetime value. Like ultimately, the smaller players have the same CAC as us, if not a higher than us, because they tend to be less well-known, but their lifetime value is always going to be lower because they can only sell in one category. You know, we get you to post a job in mobile development. From there, we help you build your website, and then you hire people to market the website, and then you hire your sales team through Upwork. And so as a result, we're able to cross-sell you across many categories, which allows us to have a better CAC to LTV ratio and help us you know, continue to grow faster than everybody else. 
When I think about this in enterprise terms, you had mentioned 30% of the Fortune 500 works with you right now, right? Yeah. One-stop shop, right? Yes. The reality is the vendor management department isn't going to work with Upwork for legal, Upwork for design, Upwork for X and Y. They're yeah. going to want to work only with Upwork mm-hmm. and sign that one large enterprise contract that meets all of their needs. Yes. That makes a ton of sense. So then as you think about the long-term health of the business, what do you think the largest, let's say, existential risks are for the business? You know, I think we're a little bit past the existential risk. I mean, the company's been operating in a, you know, cash flow break-even or positive way for a long time. So we're going to be around for decades We're not now. getting rid of you. I get it. <laughs> no, we're not going away anytime <laughs> soon. But I would say, you know, what is challenging every year is to maintain the growth rate. You know, the law of gravity does kick in. In order for us to make our numbers this year, we need to add almost $500 million worth of, you know, what most marketplaces would call GMV. We call it GSV because we do services. And, you know, every year you start the beginning of the year feeling like this is increasingly daunting. And, you know, we pull it off every time and network effects obviously help a lot in this business. But it's clear that we need to continue to invest in the platform, invest in sales, invest in marketing and just challenge ourselves to think creatively about getting to the next step. You know, what got us successfully from zero to 100 million was not the same thing that got us from 1 billion to a billion. And it's not the thing that's going to get us from where we are today to 10 billion. So we need to go after bigger customers, we need to go after bigger jobs, we need to go after higher end talent that can command, you know, even higher rates. It's going to be hard to get to $10 billion of GSV, $700 at a time, which is what the average job size is on Upwork today. So we need to get into the $10,000 jobs more often than we do today. That'll be a challenging task. So I look forward to watching your team solve it. Now, last week, I tweeted out that we were going to have a conversation Mm -hmm. and do an interview. So I asked the audience to send in their questions beforehand. So I wanted to ask a few of those. One of them is from Twitter, from at Robson Amanda, who is an Upwork user herself. And she asked specifically about how you manage and handle the problem of contractors moving off of the platform and taking clients with them once they've used Upwork to establish a relationship. So I'm curious, how exactly do you solve that problem? Sure. So it's what marketplaces call circumvention, and it happens on every marketplace. There's many, many different answers to this question. The first one is it does happen, right? And it's part of our, you know, when investors ask me the question, I tell them, look, the numbers you see are the numbers net of people that are cheating. It's a form of theft, right? I mean, we we treat it very seriously. If you're stealing from us, we're going to have, you know, legal consequences against you. It's part of the contract that you sign up for. The terms of service are really clear. If you find a freelancer through Upwork, if you want to buy the relationship out, there's a very clear way of doing it, but you need to pay us money for it. And similarly, on the freelancer side, if you source clients from us, you are expected to continue to go use the platform. But the PNL that you see is based on whatever people do to cheat, despite the fact that we try to make sure that they don't. What we do specifically, one thing is bigger customers don't do this, right? So bigger companies, first of all, have a legal team that tells them, this is what you signed up for. You know, thou shalt not do something that you said you wouldn't do. But frankly, like bigger companies tend to do the opposite, which is not only do they not want to circumvent the platform, but they actually want to bring all of their existing consultants, contractors, freelancers, and small agencies onto the platform so that they have a better piece of software to manage all of that stuff. You know, there's a lot of compliance risk, there's a lot of payments risk, there's a lot of intellectual property and information security risk that companies are exposed to. And a platform like Upwork is helping them, you know, mitigate the risk and measure what's going on in their platform, et cetera, et cetera. So for bigger companies, we tend to have reverse circumvention, if you will, where they bring what we call BYO. So they bring their own contract workforce onto the platform. 
for smaller companies, I would say we do probably what a lot of the marketplaces do, which is, I would say, carrots, sticks, and alignment of incentives, right? The carrots are things like, if you've been billing recently on Upwork, you're more likely to show up as at the top of search results. So if you're cheating on job number N, it's going to be harder for you to get job number N plus one. So it's kind of this repeated prisoner's dilemma game where, you know, if you only play the game once, then both parties have, have an incentive to cheat on each other. But if you play the game an infinite number of times, both parties have an incentive to behave better. And that's what we're trying to achieve. The sticks are, if we find you, we kick you out. And if we really, really like you, we might give you a fair warning before we do. But for the most part, you know, people get kicked out and it's very publicly visible and people are very vocal about it, but you stole from us. You know, why on earth should we continue to work with you? And then the alignment of incentive is, you know, the pricing structure that we have goes down over time. So when you start working with a new client, we charge you 20%. After you've earned $500 with that client, we charge you 10%. And after you've hit $10,000 with that client, we go down to 5%. And the reason is because we realize we create more value at the beginning when we bring a new, basically like a lead generation and marketing funnel for you. So we're going to create more value and therefore expect to get paid more for it. And conversely, if you've been working with the same client for a couple of years, we realize that we're mostly a piece of software that helps you with you know, collaboration and helps you with invoicing and billing and payments. And we know that the competitive set for that is a little bit less expensive and we should not be charging you as much. You know, another way of looking at it is if you are making, let's say, $50,000 a year on Upwork with one contract from one client, you're not getting more as much value from us as if you're making $50,000 a year, 200 bucks at a time with, I don't even can do the math, but you know, thousands of different contracts. The second person gets a lot more value and frankly costs us a lot more money than the first one. So it makes sense that the second person would be paying us more fees than the first one. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think we've been hinting at my next question, which is what are some of the KPIs or metrics that you track to gauge the health of the business? Yeah, so there's tons, you know, as I think many technology companies and marketplaces in general, there's a ton of data in the system. A lot of things are happening in real time. You know, we make money $100 at a time every few seconds, right? And so there's a lot of real-time monitoring that happens that goes into the tools that we use for trust and safety, the tools that we use for machine learning, the tools that we use for managing the business, et cetera, et cetera. But if you had to boil it down to just a handful of KPIs, I think the number one at the end of the day is net promoter score, right? This is a word of mouth business and it's a high retention business. 100% of our freelancer acquisition comes from word of mouth. 10,000 people sign up on Upwork every single day. We do not market to acquire people. In fact, we have too many people signing up every day. We don't have enough jobs for people. And the reason why the word of mouth is so high is because for people that are able to get in and you know, make money on Upwork, it's life-changing. You know, you've got more freedom, more flexibility, access to jobs you never had before, and you make a lot more money. And so when you do that, you tell all your friends about it. So a high NPS on the freelancer side is really important. On the buyer side, we do pay for traffic. You know, we buy ads online and we have a sales team and those are expensive. And so we want to make sure that when people do sign up through a paid channel, they have such a great experience that they stay forever and that they also refer other people either within their company or from other companies. And so again, like a net promoter score is a key driver of retention and referrals. So if I had to give just one number, that would be it. If you look more at the operational metrics of the business, you know, GSV, like most marketplaces, is a key performance indicator because at the end of the day, you can increase revenue by increasing your take rate. 
that only goes so far. At some point, your customers get so upset that they leave the platform. So the true health of the business is driven by GSV growth. And then, you know, you can go down all the way into further metrics in the PNL. You know what we give, we are now a publicly traded company. So two operational metrics we give to investors. One is client spend retention. So what a, maybe an e-commerce company would call same store sales. You know, how set of customers that spend $100 last year, how much are they spending this year? And for us, it's above 100%, which is very rare for a marketplace. You know, most marketplaces tend to have a lot of churn and they spend the first few months of the year just getting back to 0% growth and then they grow from there. And the other one we give to investors is what we call core clients, which are clients that have spent enough money with us that they really understand the value and they become engaged. And that's our attempt at looking like giving something that you could compare to a trial period in a SaaS business. You know, if you're on Dropbox, you might be on a free plan for a while. And at some point you hit some kind of block or some reason why you want to upgrade and you upgrade to a paid plan. And there is no such thing as free on Upwork because you have to you know, pay to use the product from day one. But essentially around that $5,000 mark, you've spent enough money, usually across multiple categories and multiple freelancers. And you have this you know, light bulb that blinks and says, hey, this is pretty awesome. I should be doing a lot more of it. That's great. And when you said client spend retention, I started laughing myself because I figured if you measured my net revenue retention with Upwork, it'd be in the thousands. Good. Can you speak towards any, let's say, specific initiative or case study around the team working to increase one of those two metrics? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the long term versus short term, in the long term, it's all about customer acquisition. But in the short term, it's all about retention, right? Like whatever customers we acquire this year is going to be a fraction of the overall revenue for the business. So anything we can do to increase the client spend retention has, you know, a lot of value for this year as opposed to the following year. So one example of something we launched recently is a set of viral loops within the product to get existing users at a company to refer coworkers that work at the same company. And this might look amazingly obvious, like why on earth did we wait 20 years to do it? But you have to remember the DNA of this company was we worked with early stage companies like Soul Props. There was nobody to cross sell to. You know, you were the person who was going to use the account and we were merchandising to you. We would say, please use us for customer support. Please use us for your blog. Please use us for your website. And as we've grown, we've started to work a lot more with companies that have tens of employees or even thousands of employees. And so merchandising all of the categories to that one person is a waste of our time because, hey, you're the head of marketing. Why on earth would we tell you about translation or customer support? It's not your department. And so instead of doing that, what we really want you to say is who else at my company should be using your work potentially in ways that are radically different from what I do. And so building... Uh, features within the product, calls to action from a marketing standpoint to say, you know, hey, John, what do you think your friend Jeff within the company could be using it for? And maybe we've detected that Jeff is, you know, a senior partner at the firm and maybe he's more interested in consumer investment. So maybe we could help Jeff source new deals by looking at who's trending on Twitter, you know, that kind of stuff. And so really understanding how your company is structured, who are you close to, what would they be interested in, and how we get to them through you, and how we talk to them based on what they might be interested in. So would love to shift more from the operational side of things to the strategic side of things, because I think you've had, and the company in general has had, a really wonderful stint exploring all of these strategic alternatives. So why don't we start with what you mentioned before, which is the merger between yeah. Alliance and Odesk. Mm -hmm. Could you start with a little bit of background on that merger, specifically the rationale, and then we can dive into the details after? Sure. Yeah, so the two companies had very different stories. 
Elance was founded way before, right, 1999. And the initial idea of Elance was very close to what Upwork is today. In fact, when we went public, I invited the founders of Elance and Odas to come and join us. And Berud, who's the founder of Elance, showed me the paper napkin where he wrote the vision for Elance to John Doerr from Kleiner Perkins in 1999 at Bucks, right? The pure stereotype of Silicon Valley. And when you look at it, it's very close to what we ended up doing, but that was 20 years too early, right? They had the right vision, but at the time there was no video conferencing, there was no broadband, you know, none of the tools were in the cloud. You basically had to be on-premise at a company to get anything done. So this idea of remote work done over a fax machine and long distance calling was not gonna work. And so as a result, they had a very complicated story where they went to do other different things. They've created what is now called a vendor management system. They sold it to a company that then got acquired by IBM. And so they pivoted multiple times. And meanwhile, Odesk had a very different story. You know, two founders, Greek guys, engineers. One of them is based in Silicon Valley. The other one is based in Greece. And they both want to interview at the same companies. And every time the one who's based in Silicon Valley gets a job offer and the one who's based in Greece never gets a job offer because how on earth could you possibly work for us while working from Greece? So they started this company thinking we're going to build tools to enable remote work from happening. So different DNAs, different stories, different background. And I think for the longest time, the two companies didn't think of each other as competitors, let alone ways of combining to each other. But I think if you fast forward around 2009, 2010, it became increasingly clear that they were going after the same target segment with relatively similar strategy. And frankly, by the time I joined, it was becoming painfully obvious that we were copying each other to death, outbidding each other to death on Google keywords, losing a lot of money, and frankly, being two very small fish in a very big pond, and that we would be better off having more scale and being able to go after a bigger part of the market. In particular, in the enterprise segment, the two products were pretty different in the enterprise space because they weren't public. Like even to this day, you can't see Upwork Enterprise unless you sign up for a contract with us. And so the two products were pretty different and the enterprise buyers tend to be fairly risk adverse. So if they hear two different stories, instead of choosing one or the other, they more often than not choose neither. And so combining the two companies made a ton of sense. And you know, of course it's easier said than done because you have two boards and two CEOs and two of everything and figuring out that, oh, I totally agree somebody should lose their job, but just not me, the other one. So that, you know, took a while. And then, of course, the regulators got involved because allegedly we were creating a monopoly, which was kind of silly, right? I mean, we do $2 billion this year on a trillion dollar industry. It's kind of absurd, but regulators did get involved. So that took a while. And then we had to start working on the post-merger integration, which because they were two different competitors, both of them were private, there was limited amount of information we could share with each other. And so there was a period of discovery after the merger happened to say, okay, well, so what do we do now? And deciding to not keep the two sites, deciding to merge them onto a single site, deciding not to keep any of the old names. We kept neither Elance nor Odesk and relaunched under the new name. And then the strategy from there around, you know, going after more domestic jobs, higher end talent and bigger companies, which you know came as a natural, I would say, side effect of the new brand and the new launch of the product. That's great. And I think the theme there is that the vision is easy and execution is painfully difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think you need both, but I would say you need vision, timing, luck, and great execution, and all of these things are necessary. And the story is easier told after the fact than it is when you go through it. There were definitely a lot of ups and downs and times when we weren't sure if we were going in the right direction or not. 
So then reflecting on the ups and downs, specifically within the context of post-merger integration, do you have any lessons learned around combining two cultures, combining two tech stacks? I mean, I'll leave it broad and you can share whatever lessons learned with the founders here in the audience. You know, we had talked to a lot of people when we were doing this and getting really a lot of help. And despite that, even though you know intellectually what you should be doing and not doing, it's tough. And I would say probably the number one thing is to get people to rally around what they have in common as opposed to debating about what's the difference. The two companies had very shared visions. The two companies were really aligned on a bigger purpose, which is really helping people get jobs and being economically successful. And yet we were having arguments about the brand of free coffee we should have in the office. And I'm not kidding. Like literally there were arguments because Odesk had fields and uh, Elance had blue bottle. I, I can't even remember, but literally people would agonize. And part of the reason was not even because they cared about the coffee, but because it sent a signal. You know, if we chose the Odesk coffee, it meant that Odesk took over Elance. And if we chose the Elance PHP framework, you know, like one was using Symfony and the other one was using, I don't even remember, but was using something else now. And people were like having almost life and death discussions about Symfony versus the other framework. Not necessarily because they really cared about it, but more because of the signal it sent to, I won or I lost. My baby is prettier than your baby. And I think, you know, in hindsight, we should have killed those discussions faster and made these decisions faster because it really doesn't matter whether you work from home days, Tuesday or Wednesday, and whether you have free yoga classes or free Pilates classes and which brand of PHP, you know, framework you use. What really matters is that people get aligned and look towards the future and don't spend too much time thinking about the past. Horizontal M&A is such a difficult task to approach. I think often you're stuck in this quandary asking yourself, how do you even think about broaching that conversation with your number one competitor? I mean, how do you think about sharing sensitive data? But clearly it's worked out well. Yeah, I mean, I think it probably doesn't make sense in every market, but in this one where it is really about network effects. I mean, if you look, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? But there were three players in this space at the time. Odesk was number one, Elance was number two, and Freelancer.com in Australia was number three. And they were also the only one that was publicly traded. And at the time, it wasn't clear that the number one was going to be the number one forever and was going to really win the battle. But once we combined Elance and Odesk and relaunched under Upwork for a short amount of time, because we had to deal with the post-merger integration, Freelancer ended up doing pretty well. But ever since then, they've been declining, like literally negative growth rate. And I think that's the perfect example of the spin wheel. You know, the good freelancers want to go where all the good jobs are and the good clients want to go where the good freelancers are. And as a result, Upwork has been the clear winner from this and freelancer.com and most of the other players have been struggling. So I think that's at least one example why combining number one and number two can really help accelerate the business and take it to the next level when you have those types of network effects that kick in. Yeah, I love that concept of a flywheel. And that flywheel ultimately brought you to the scale you needed to IPO. So congratulations on that. And having seen the IPO roadshow process as a former banker myself, I'd love for you to talk more about the granular process of taking a company public, as I think for most of us out there, it's a relatively abstract concept where we just see you ringing the bell at the stock exchange. So knowing how tenuous and difficult and long the roadshow process can actually be, could you walk us through that step-by-step, let's say from engaging your bankers to doing the roadshow and then ringing the bell? Yeah. I mean, I would say it starts even before that, which is, you know, why would you go public and how do you know that you're ready to go public, right? And there can be many different reasons why you would want to go public. Historically, the main reason for a lot of companies was to be able to access funding. 
but there was limited amount of money you could raise in the private markets. And if you wanted to raise $100 million or more, you couldn't possibly do this as a private company. You had to become a public company. That is much less the case today, right? Whether it's SoftBank or the crossover, the T-Row prices of the world, there are ways. I mean, Uber has been the you know poster child of this, and we work too. There are ways to raise billions of dollars in the private market. So that reason becomes less compelling. I would say the other thing that's made it harder than before is the bar for being a public company is much higher than it was, you know, let's say in the 1990s. The minimum scale you need to have to be interesting to analysts and the overhead cost of all of the Sarbanes-Oxley and all of the public company accounting is much higher than it used to be, right? I mean, you'll probably spend north of $10 million going public and millions of dollars a year of additional costs with your auditors, with more of the support functions in GNA. And so you need to have a certain scale for it to be worthwhile, right? So those are like, you know, reasons not to go public. For us, the main reason to go public was not fundraising. You know, we've been cash flow break even or higher for a number of years, and we could raise a lot more money privately if we wanted to much more easily than the fundraising process was in going public. You know, two reasons for doing it were around publicity, right? So publicity within the SMB and freelancer space, you know, we are in the news, on TV much more often today, like we're on Bloomberg all the time, we're on CNBC all the time. As a private company, it's really, really hard to get that level of coverage. And when you're a business that is mostly, you know, inbound and word of mouth and PR led, it really matters a lot, right? So we knew, or we were hoping, and it actually did happen, that as part of becoming a public company, the level of awareness we would be generating for free would go up a lot. And that's been a really big success. The second one is in the enterprise space. Big companies tend to be very risk adverse and working with a somewhat unknown black box Silicon Valley company that claims to be really big is pretty scary to them. And I would say the level of executive sponsorships, you know, the level of meetings I get with very senior executives at some of the largest companies in the world today is orders of magnitude different from what it was before. And I think in many ways, it's a filter more than anything. You know, every Silicon Valley-based company goes to talk to the Fortune 500 and says, we're big, we're important, we're here to stay. And on the receiving side of this, people are like inundated with all these companies and they have no way of knowing who's real and who's fake. You know, there's a lot of the reality distortion field and fake it until you make it type of behavior in Silicon Valley. And so the those enterprise buyers are you know, overwhelmed and confused. And more often than not, they choose nobody because they just don't know who to pick. And so the universe of publicly traded tech companies is much smaller. And so we go in there now saying, you know, we are a billion and a half or $2 billion market cap company. We've been around for 20 years and this is how we can help you. And the level of meetings that you get is much, much higher than it was before. And as a result, you know, we close deals faster and they get to scale much faster than they used to. But you're asking me about the process, right? So the detailed process is, you know, once you agree with your board that now is the time to do it and you have an idea of what you're trying to get out of it, how you're going to be structuring the deal, how you're going to be, you know, thinking about marketing it and all that stuff, you need to pick the bankers. You need to pick outside counsels that represent you and help the bankers represent, choose the outside counsel that represents them. You start working with your audit firm. So presumably if you're a VC-backed company, you've already been audited by the big four for a number of years. Now may not be the best time to change auditors, but it's still better to do it now than to do it after the IPO. So like, make sure you really know who your auditors are and you really trust them to go with the process. But you're going to switch from private company accounting once a year to public company accounting once every quarter. And so that means that internally you need to close the books much faster than before. You can't make mistakes. 
And you just need to tighten up a lot of processes, including the fact that progressively, you're going to need to get ready to no longer be what's known as an emerging growth company, which means you're going to have to be SOX compliant. And Sarbanes-Oxley is a lot of work. And so if you, if you struggle to close your books as a private company, then you're really not ready to go public. The other thing that I would say is super important is predictability. You know, what public company investors do not like is when companies don't make their numbers. That would be an understatement, I think. And so you need to have reasonably good visibility for the entire year and incredibly good visibility for the next quarter, because otherwise you're either going to be sandbagging too much and people will start to second guess whatever you say and you lose complete control over the guidance, or you're going to, you know, overpromise and underdeliver, and then your stock price gets really, really hit as a result. And so predictability is, is key as well. But essentially, you work on two tracks. You, you work with your auditors to figure out how you get ready for public company accounting. And then you work with the lawyers and the banks to get ready with the prospectus itself, right? So you're going to write, essentially, if you're a US-based company, you're going to write what is called an S1, which is a 200-page document that has some amount of marketing material, but even that is controlled by a lot of lawyers. So it's not as salesy as your you know, sales collateral or your website might be. So you're very limited in terms of what you do. But then a really big part of the document is around risk factors. So what could go wrong and making sure that you represent to public investors what you think might be potential risks to the business, as well as a pretty long financial section that details, you know, not only the operating metrics, but all of the gap metrics and the methodology that you use in order to derive those numbers. And so that takes you to a private filing. So if you are what's known as an emerging growth company, which means you're relatively small, you can file confidentially with the SEC, which means that nobody knows about it. Although recently, it seems like people issue a press release to say that they have nothing to talk about. But historically, it is truly meant to be a confidential process. The SEC has a certain amount of time to get back to you. Usually they come back with a list of questions or things that they think you should be changing in your document. You submit again. It's a very structured you know, approach to this. Companies that do this for a living, like formatting your S1 in the way that makes the SEC happy with you. And usually there's gonna be a second round of comments and if things go well, that's it. When the SEC says you can go, you can flip to public. That's usually when the press gets involved. Everybody sees your S1. Everybody has an opinion about whether your business is amazing or not. And then you have a two-week cooling period. During that time, by the way, all of this is during a quiet period. So you can't really talk about your business publicly all that much. You're very, very limited in terms of what you can say. But you flip to public and that starts the roadshow. So the roadshow is usually two weeks. And during the roadshow, you're basically marketing the deal to institutional investors in the US and potentially internationally. And then the very last day before the IPO itself is uh, what is known as pricing and allocation. So this is when you decide exactly at what price you're gonna be issuing the shares and how much of the equity you give to each of the people that have you know, shown interest for your deal. And then the morning of, you go celebrate at either the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. It feels like a wedding. There's a planner who's there to tell you when to clap and when to smile and, you know, what to eat and what to say. And it's an amazing experience. I mean, I, I was there with my wife and my kids, and it was really a very unique and special moment to have both the company and the family at the same time. And then, you know, things start, like the stock starts to trade and the entire day you're on TV. I, I think I did something like 15 interviews that day, starting at like 4 a.m. East Coast time, which was pretty brutal. And then uh, you go home and you go back to work. And what I think a lot of people forget is it's actually relatively easy to go public. What's really hard is to be public. And so the next day is 
it's almost like the day after the wedding where you wake up and you're like, oh, wow, now it's the beginning of the rest of my life. <laughs> and then there's this quarterly cadence where, you know, every quarter we have to report earnings. Every quarter we spend a lot of time with investors and with analysts to help them understand, you know, what we're working on and why they should be buying the stock in the company. Thank you so much for sharing that. I can tell you definitely lived and breathed that process. So then let's say there's a Series C or a Series D founder who dreams of taking their company public. What would your number one piece of advice be? Never, ever, ever overpromise. You're much better off starting with a relatively low stock price because people don't understand your business. They're not as passionate about it as you are and going up over time rather than disappoint. I mean, I'm not gonna name names of companies, but I think everybody can remember extremely unsuccessful IPOs where it usually becomes a downward spiral because once you've lost, trust is everything, right? I mean, you know your business inside out, you think you're amazing. The outside world has no idea whether you're amazing or not, and they have no particular reason to believe you. So if you start by disappointing, you lose the trust, and trust is very easy to lose and very, very hard to regain. So I would say be very deliberate on defining the long-term model that makes sense that you know you can achieve and ideally that you can beat and make sure that people understand what is a stretch and what is easy and what is achievable and execute. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And I think it helps us shift to the last part of the conversation, which is around the title of the podcast, which is pattern recognition. So what are some consistent patterns or themes you see across successful marketplace businesses? There's a lot of those. But, you know, I would say what I'm starting to see more and more, and it's definitely the history of our company, there's a initial product market fit with an initial set of customers. And then you realize that is no longer the right set of customers for the next phase of growth. And you have to rediscover product market fit there. And by the time you figure it out, there's a next one. I, sometimes I meet with earlier stage founders and they think that once they found product market fit, the rest of life is going to be easy. That is not the case, right? It's a series of events where you need to reinvent yourself. And what took you from point A to point B usually is not the thing that takes you from point B to point C. And I think like specifically what seems to be a pattern with a lot of marketplaces is at the beginning, you any customer is welcome on two sides of the network. Like, please come in because we desperately need, you know, one bodies on the two sides of the marketplace. But progressively, you realize that the less committed, you know, the more mainstream type of buyers and the more mainstream type of sellers have less passion for what you do and also a lot less patience for things that don't deliver to their expectation. And as a result, progressively move from a free-for-all and very open-ended platform to something that is much more vetted and curated and intermediated. And if you look at Upwork today, you can't sign up as a freelancer on Upwork. You apply to join, right? You create a profile, you add as much information as you can, and you click on submit, and more than 90% of people, when they click on submit, will get an email back saying, sorry, we don't have a job for you. And it's not even saying, we don't think you're a good person. Like we're not even saying that. We're just saying you can't get in because we don't have enough demand for your skills. And that is radically different from what we were, you know, five or six years ago, where we were a little bit more of a Craigslist type of model, if you will. Everybody could sign up. And the downside of that approach was, in certain categories, you'd get an imbalance of a hundred times between supply and demand, which means that there would be kind of a winner's curse, you know, like the race to the bottom, people who would win the jobs would usually get paid pennies on the dollar. For the buyers, it was, in theory, it sounded like a really good idea, except in practice, the best people would not stay in a category like this because they couldn't earn enough money. And as a result, the quality was not that good. So it's kind of a lose-lose, you know, there's a lot of virtuous cycles in marketplaces, but there's also a lot of vicious cycles in marketplaces and quality tends to be a vicious cycle. 
Like if you don't manage quality and you don't manage trust, then the best users on both sides end up leaving. So then you get the second best on both sides and they end up leaving and then you get the third best and you get this you know, uh, vicious cycle where things get worse. And it was very clear that the end state of this was 2 billion people were going to make a dollar per year each and have to outbid each other to death in order to get the $1. Whereas today we're in a place where there's only a few hundred thousand people that are earning money on Upwork. And for the most part, they're earning as much money as they're willing to earn based on how many hours a week they're willing to work on the platform. And we're not done. There's still categories where that's not the case. So we continue to work even more on balancing supply and demand. And obviously, at this scale, you have to do it completely algorithmically, right? So building better ontology, better categorization of work to understand, hey, in the Swift development part of iOS development, which is part of mobile app development, right now there's an imbalance between supply and demand, and therefore we need more supply or we need more demand. And do this you know, in real time and continuously throughout the life of the system. That's great. And what is a book you've recently read and how has it changed your perspective? One that I've read, like this was a couple of years ago, but I think that's one of the few that really changed my thinking was Ben Horowitz, The Hard Things About Hard Things. You know, there's a lot of books that tend to explain after the fact, you know, the good to great type of examples where the companies were amazing at the time and you look at the book now and you realize, hey, all the companies that were there are actually dead now. And there's a lot of, you know, rationalization after the fact and it doesn't really help with pattern recognition. And I think what, you know, Ben's doing in the book, it's much more down to earth. Like this is my experience and this is what I've learned from it. And it felt really genuine and it felt really practical to me and I've actually learned a lot from it. Yeah, it's a fantastic book and I can see how Ben's experiences all the way from Mosaic to LoudCloud would really resonate with your career experiences. Yeah. So last question for you here. Mm -hmm. What is your ultimate vision for Upwork? Yeah, I mean, I think the long term is, you know, the way we work today is going to change dramatically. If you think about this whole idea of coming to an office every day, it's a legacy from the first industrial revolution, right? We all had to go to the factory because we worked at the assembly line and the assembly line operated from nine to five. And therefore we had to be on site and we had to be on time. And that's how the world was organized. The jobs that more and more people have today are much more specialized. So the company may not need you full time. You may not want to commit to working for the company full time. They're much more location agnostic. You should be able to work from anywhere. And they should allow the flexibility to work 80 hours a week one week and zero hours a week the next week. And I think companies will be much more nimble and much more flexible, which is what shareholders need. It's what consumers need. And it's frankly, at a time when the pace of change is accelerating, that's the thing that's going to make companies survive and thrive. But probably more importantly, it's going to make people more fulfilled. You know, I think our lives right now put the work at the center of the life and put your personal life around it with whatever gaps are being left by the constraints of your work life. And I think the future is going to put your personal life your you know hobbies your communities at the center and then you're going to put work around it and i think that's going to be something that operates over the next 20 or 25 years it's not going to happen overnight but it has massive implications for how we do urban planning how we think about transportation how we think about the social contract and generally i would say the world is going to reinvent itself around the individual you know companies are loosely coupled networks of individuals and the individuals are going to be dictating how you can engage with them. And companies and their shareholders will build these you know, teams of experts that are coming in for a specific duration of time and then reassembling somewhere else, potentially with a competitor afterwards. 
That is a wonderful vision. And I can definitely say that the company itself embodies that vision where today, in order to check into the Upwork office, there was no physical desk. In fact, I buzzed into a virtual assistant via a webcam and that remote assistant was able to handle all of the typical work streams just as efficiently and from the comfort of her own home. And that really clicked for me another great example of how the nature of jobs and work is evolving. You know, there's this expression in Silicon Valley called eating your own dog food. Yeah. We, we call it uh, drinking <laughs> your own champagne. And so there's about 1,500 people who work at the company, but only 400 of them work in an office. Most of the people who work at the company work from home or work from a co-working space. Many of them are freelancers. And we think it's a huge competitive advantage. I mean, partly we need to do it for ourselves because it's going to be hard for us to convince our customers to do it if we can't do it. And it's really embedded in our values and embedded in our culture. But partly it's a huge competitive advantage. You know, the people that work from home are incredibly productive. They're incredibly loyal to the company. Many of them live in a place where nobody from Google or Facebook or, you know, Microsoft is going to poach them. We're going to be their, you know, employer of choice or client of choice for the rest of our lives, as long as we treat them with respect and give them, you know, the type of flexibility that they want in their lives. That's wonderful. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for joining the pod. Thanks for having me. Once again, a big thank you to Stefan for joining us today. If you're looking to add leverage to your daily productivity, then I highly encourage you to check out Upwork as it plays an instrumental role in my own day-to-day. In the meantime, I have tweeted out our upcoming guest list on Twitter, which includes Sophia Amoruso from Nasty Gal and Girlboss, as well as Jake Schwartz from General Assembly. So I'd absolutely love if you could send in your questions, and I will look forward to giving you a shout out during those interviews. You can tweet at me at John Heasy. That's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y. So thank you all for tuning in and I'll talk to you next week.